Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's Grammy winner, twice times nominated producer of the year, critically acclaimed multi instrumentalist, pushes the boundary of what pop music can sound like. Having worked with fringe brilliance like Vampire Weekend, Hiam, and Adele, he has never taken organic sounds for granted in the name of commerciality. And yet, he's reached the pinnacle of radio success multiple times, starting with his first ever smash as the producer of the evergreen Hey There Delilah. This first-generation son of immigrants hails from the city of Los Angeles with a musical integrity rivaled by few. And the writer is Ariel Rekshide. Thank you. What a nice intro. Some stuff. Yeah, I you know, some stuff you've earned it, right? I guess so. I guess so. That all seems accurate. Who knows? It was more or less accurate. Something about Grammys. I don't know. <laughs> we try. How do you feel about How do you feel about Grammys? How do I feel about Grammys or accolades as a whole? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm pretty like. Uh, I have a pretty balanced view about it. You know, I'm not like super anti. It's nice to be. It's nice to be recognized, but at the same time, I don't even think I really, of course I knew what the Grammys were, but I honestly never even considered that. It was almost as abstract as like a Oscar or something. It just didn't feel like my world of music until suddenly it was, you know? Sure. Which again, not for, a, not for no other reason other than, you know, the lack of exposure to it. Yeah. So I guess I just, you know, once, once it, yeah, it's a, it, it's a nice concept, you know? Of course. But it, it's just, uh, anything like that's kind of set up to create a little bit of weirdness. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's also the, the categories that you've been recognized for are 
um, are sort of uniquely judged. That makes sense. Like the panels that deal with producer of the years and the panels that deal with, you know, album, um, alternative albums and whatnot, you know, those are our panels of, you know, in theory of, of your peers who are recognizing that success. Yeah. Which I, which is nice. You know, it's all nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice. I just, uh, you know, it's kind of nice. And then you get back to work. Totally. Well, speaking of, uh, the musical journey that you've been on. Yeah, we'll go to let's start. Let's start from the beginning because I, I always like giving. How does somebody become, you know, somebody who can get to this level? And your parents, being immigrants, you being a kid in LA in the in the eighties. What's it like growing up here? What were your what was your family like with music? Who's who you know, who introduced you to music? Tell me some of your story. Well, my parents were music fans, you know. They were I, I think my parents, I mean just by nature of their like situation and upbringing, I don't think we ever considered <clears throat> music as like uh I mean, I can say with 100% confidence that never considered music as like a career you know and what did did your parents do my dad installed and fixed laundry mats and my mom was a nurse so did they listen did they listen to music i mean when you say music yeah 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 i mean i i i wasn't well okay on two fronts. My mom was like really into classical music and tried to get me in that world as a kid, you know, like piano lessons at a young age, violin lessons, that sort of thing. But just as a, I think as like sort of your, just in a sort of educational cultural way, you know, not, not for any competitive real reasons, you know? And, uh, and both of them were big into rock and roll, classic. Mom was like more of an Elvis person. Dad was more of a Rolling Stones person. And uh, and then I grew up listening to stuff and sort of learning about stuff through them. But I also grew up in L.A. where a lot of time is spent in the car and the radio is a huge part of your life. And, of course, I grew up in like MTV generation. And so... There was no lack of exposure to music. Um, I think I was drawn to it, but, you know, it's hard It's hard to know really, like, what that moment was. You know, there was no, like, serious, um, there was no, like, moment, you know. When it was you're playing like, piano and you're younger, I, I know when I would have to practice, I, I managed to practice up to the point where I decided to use the same chords and just start writing a song? Well, you know, that happened for me with, with when I started playing guitar. Oh, interesting. It, it, didn't, you... it didn't really connect with me with piano. Like, I was okay at piano, and I went in and out. I was, I'm, I was, discipline is not, like, my thing, you know? So, anything like that. And also, I'm left-handed, so anytime, I really feel like I struggled in certain ways. Like, there was just things that are sort of classically designed to be one way and just don't really... 
I didn't really fully connect with people until I had a left-handed instrument in my hand, you know? Wow. I, I, I feel like that either it was that or, or just the fact that I could suddenly play songs that I knew that were mostly guitar based, you know, being a lefty and playing piano, does that make you focus on bass differently as an adult because you're constantly working on bass lines? Well, and so, yeah, like bass kind of became, in the end, like when I sort of just went through my own journey, I kind of gravitated towards bass. And that just became sort of, you know, the most go-to instrument, like whether it was the left hand of a, of a keyboard or a bass guitar. It's just somehow, Why? I don't know. I think I was just like very interested in uh, root notes and harmonies of root notes, you know? Who, who were, like what bands, you know, grow, growing up listening to the radio in the 80s and whatnot, you know, there's talking heads and whatnot, but what bands and what, what projects made you, you know, inspired you as a, as a bassist? Well, um, kind of all of it. So my, my dad was a big talking heads fan, you know, that was sort of the, in real time, you know, like, I think like, just like anybody else, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were like, when I was a kid, you know, this is what blew, blew me away. But the talking heads were happening when I was really young and he was kind of like, you know, probably younger than me or my age listening to the radio and just keeping up with times. And that was what spoke to him. And, and that interested me. And I'm just going to kind of freestyle here. And, and I know that like when I discovered the clash, which was also kind of all over MTV, you know, rock the Casbah. And then you start to just eventually do your, this is a little bit scattered because obviously it could take, we could spend all week talking about like, the musical influences and journey. But I think that at some point, what through line that I found between a lot of the music that influenced me was music that was heavily influenced by lots of genres and maybe world music a little bit, actually, you know, when you think about the clash being influenced by ska and reggae. And I, I, I discovered a lot of that kind of music working backwards. Like, you know, there was a clash song that what, when I looked at the, you know, I've studied album artwork because back then, you actually could look at an album cover and just read it. And there wasn't any other way to kind of find out too much about it. So, you know, written by Joe Strummer, written by Joe Strummer, written by Mick Jones, written by, <laughs> and then suddenly written by Junior Mervin. That's a cool name. Who's Junior Mervin, you know? And then you kind of go to the record store, ask a couple of people who Junior Mervin is, find out he was a reggae artist, buy a Junior Mervin album, discover Lee Scratch Perry was the producer, you know, kind of start going down that whole... Uh, journey and so much of that music is bass driven you know as well as just hip-hop and a lot of the contemporary music that was happening as i was growing because i think like my real formative years were the 90s i was a you know i was a baby in the 80s but i think kind of like the ska reggae hip-hop kind of world maybe a little bit of african music in whatever way that it was infused into Western pop music, kind of. I'm growing up out here when, you know, the 90s for a lot of our age group yeah. is a grunge. Yeah. And as you get 
the sky, like Scott is like it becomes just California music, no doubt, and even like Sublime and all these like mm-hmm. incredible bands, you know, many, many, many other bands. Um, did you? When did you start creating music? I guess at all that's that's original, and you actually sang in your band. I know at one point. I did. Like, who changed? Who decides? Like, when do you decide? You know what? I play all these instruments. I'm going to start performing live, and I'm now a lead singer of a band. Kind of completely arbitrarily, you know. Like, I, I in in elementary school, going in and out of different fascinations and whatever else. At some point, I had a teacher that had a lot of snakes in our bed in the classroom, and I became obsessed with snakes. I, I can't even imagine myself being that way now, but I wanted to get a pet snake. And my mom was like, I had another friend whose older sister played guitar or something like that. And so his parents, so he had his sister's guitar handed down and, you know, it was, it was in the conversation. So my parents were like, how about guitar? And I was like, oh, okay. And kind of distracted me from my, uh, from snakes, which is random. But uh, so suddenly I had a guitar in my hand and I learned how to play it. And I got into it because, you know, I could play these Beatles songs that I heard my parents listen to. I could play Nirvana kind of like changed everything. You learned the power chord and got really into it. And um, just whatever, everything that was kind of contemporary or anything that was in my life, I could play on guitar. And then I'm an only child and we're talking about like pre-internet and there's no real like examples around me of anybody doing anything with that instrument. So I just never even had the thought that I could perhaps start a band or write my own songs or do anything like that. And it wasn't until years later in high school, sort of the combination of the skateboard culture that I was in, all the friends I had that skated, you start to meet more people and it was very music driven, you know, it was like, and predominantly hip hop driven. So like if I met somebody who listened to punk music, I was like, they stood out a little bit and represented another side of my taste at the time. Cause I was pretty much like split down the middle, like nineties hip hop. And I was really kind of getting into punk bands and I, I met some people and again, like very long story, but it just turned out one guy that I met skateboarding in one part of town happened to know my childhood friend from elementary school and hap- they, they were currently going to high school together and they were in a band and it just blew my mind. I'm like, what? You know, like, you you guys play in a band? Like, that's so crazy to me. And then I went to their, like, high school fair or something, watched them play, and it just, it put the idea in my head that, you know, this like, something we could do. Not with any big goals or ambitions, but just, like, another thing you do with all the time you have as a kid, you know? And so I picked up the guitar again. It was the first time in a while. And then there's also kind of, simultaneously, I, I, I went to a high school, it was an L.A., public high school but it had a a hamilton high school and it had like a big jazz program you know like kamasi washington went to my high school he was like the 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 local sax player you know and a bunch of people went there daniel rosin who wound up being in uh grizzly bear and all kind a lot of jazz people but then also some people who ended up being in bands so it just kind of exposed me to the idea of that you know and then and then, yeah, of course, there were also local, semi-local bands and punk shows happening where I started to discover, like, 
Yeah, there was no doubt, of course, Sublime. But there was also, like, the myth of Operation Ivy, and then you kind of discovered, like, the specials, and they weren't current bands, but it just... I don't know what it was, but in that moment, it seemed fun to do it. It wasn't like there was a whole lot of information out there. And that was like my first little attempt. I started a band. It was kind of a total, total joke. And Disposed? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was like three years of my life from like soup to nuts. You know, it was like nothing. Did you write, did you, you know, I assume that they were original songs. Yeah, there were songs about like skateboarding and... Uh, Your first song that you wrote? Oh, I don't know. Literally, they literally would have been like, you know, at the time we were like, I think we, we found our drummer because we also liked Gorilla Biscuits, which was like a hardcore band. And we like put that in the ad in the recycler, which was like the LA kind of yeah. um, physical Craigslist or something, you know? Yeah, it's hard to explain what the recycler was, but it's the it was a mix between Craigslist and kind of what you know. I think it's Jam Card. It's like it's like a way for instrumentalists to meet each other. Plus, it was like a way to get it. Like uh, it was a classified ads for it was it was just just people sold things. You know, I mean, I really think it's a lot like Craigslist, like sell and like random like musicians looking for. It's really like jobs it was everything you know and it was a free, uh was it free i can't remember if it was free or not did you like you know you're in this band but even three years of being in a band in la i feel like somewhere somebody's gonna say to you like hey you should play with this band and that band like you were saying some kids that you went to high school end up in grizzly bear so it's like you're starting to see people who make a career out of it not for not not till years and years later you know because i was like 16 right so like i did i i did later like when i was like 25 which felt like a like a lifetime later had another band that you know toured with grizzly bear and we had and we that was a real that moment in my life was very like jump in situation like blind leading the blind like no 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 real and jumping in is even like a weird way to describe it because i wasn't trying to jump into anything it was a series of random things that happened we played we were playing like a, a all ages literally coffee shop in the valley that like i don't even know how we knew about it it was just a place that like and it was not genre specific it wasn't anything just like a random place that would let us play you know and i felt like such a huge accomplishment to actually be able to play somewhere you know in front of just to like get the gig to do it and we did it and we and we we used to play there a lot like we were terrible and we ended up playing with uh this band less than jake that came through town oh yeah and i had no idea who they were and i had no idea what anything was going on and then suddenly the drummer of that band was like hey you should you guys should do a record on my label and i was like what is you know none of that it was like almost like a foreign language. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, you mean record something? What do you mean your label? Like, your what? What is that? A record label? Like record label? You know? I mean, it's hard for me to even get back in that place. But I literally didn't understand anything about any of this stuff. And then he explained to me that he had a record label, uh, and I saw like their merch table. I'm like, oh, so are those CDs on your record label? No, those CDs are on Capitol Records. And I was like, Capitol Records? What? Like. 
like the Beatles or something? Like that makes no sense. Like, you know what I mean? Cause I just thought like, we all suck, you know, like this is not real. This is just like some stupid jokey kind of thing, you know? And, and it, it kind of, like, you know, changed, warped my mind a little bit. I was like, okay, what does that all this mean? And then we did do, we did go into a studio like one night a week for, you know, over the course of like three months and made some version of an album that came out on his own indie label, which was called Fuel by Ramen, which we then bought a van off of the local church and drove it to Florida where they were based out of and stayed on his, his uh, partner's dorm room floor, who was John Janik, you know, who seemed like an old man at like 18 because we were like 16, you know? And it was just like totally psychotic. And we did that and came back to LA. And by the time we came back to LA, suddenly there were like managers kind of hitting us up. Like, hey, you know, like we should talk. And we got offered a record deal from some label that I'd never really heard of called Interscope Records. And I was like, what is that? You know, and then went, which is totally coincidental that John now runs Interscope. You know, I went, I went, I went to Interscope, like, what is Interscope? What is that? You know, and then... I saw death row uh, posters on the wall. Cause this is like when Interscope was totally independent. It looked like a college radio station, you know, and West was small little building posters everywhere. Totally like di- total different vibe, you know, you, still and, think you sucked during this. Like, are you still yes, absolutely hundred <laughs> percent? Like do you- hated my music, hated myself, hated our fans. I was so, I was such a mess, you know, I was like, just like so difficult, you know, when, when Interscope gives you a deal or an offer and Fuel by Ramen just releases your album, and I, I recognize that this time Fuel by Ramen is probably... We were, they the, probably we were the first have, thing ever. So, ever come out of Fuel by yeah, Ramen? So don't, it didn't make me feel anything. I liked John. It was fun, It was, but it didn't give me any sort of comfort level, you know, about like what I was doing with my life. You're a sophomore in high school. Like, what, who has comforted sophomore in high school or a junior in high school? I was the junior. I, I dropped out of high school to, to go on tour. Oh, I see. Did you end up graduating? No. Crazy. Yeah, I like pretty much disrupted my whole family situation. Everybody hated me. I was, I mean, it was literally like some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shit. We were in a van driving around the country looking for skate parks skating and going you know and then playing shows in front of two people 10 it was did did dropping out of high school you know having being a an only child of immigrants yeah i imagine that 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 was complicated it it was complicated i mean dropping out is a little is not exactly representative of what it was i was going to this school that had a jazz program i had an extra period every day in school so i was like gaining extra credits that you know a normal high school student wasn't gaining and i was just like just i I did some extra summer school classes and i was just shy of having all my requirements actually graduate a year early and i just lost steam because i was so focused on you know, practicing and going on tour and just like my head was in the clouds. So I didn't, I didn't graduate, but I didn't like completely like, you know, just stop going to school. I mean, I did, but it was like, there was some, there was some semblance of a plan that just didn't completely finish. 
and it's not indicative of being lazy. If if you if you drop out because you're working, it's a different experience than dropping out because you don't want to go to school. Totally, but it didn't quite feel like working. I mean, it, it was, you know, looking back on it, but you know, it's it's an interesting kind of psychological situation when no one's telling you what to do, and for the first, you know, and you're just, you know, taking this random path in your life with no sort of there's no there's no guidance at all like nobody was guiding us we didn't you know for there was no there was nobody you said that there was sort of some like self-hatred is that is that uh hyperbolic or were you actually pretty like hating yourself at this point not hating myself but i was I started to get, I started to feel anxiety. You know, there was a lot, it was a lot of fun at first. And then pretty, as soon as like we went to make a record and I finally had something to compare it to all these records I've listened to my whole life. I, I knew that I wasn't there yet, you know? And, and by the way, like I don't regret any of it and I don't actually hate it. It was, I was a little kid, you know, it was, it's fun and, and it's, and it's interesting how many people those albums touched and how many people I still meet to this day that like remember that era. There was something special about that era, but I just knew for myself what was happening was not enough. And I needed to, because I had such a deep like record collection and like a knowledge of music, but just no knowledge of how to make it, you know, I, I knew I needed to kind of dig deeper and, figure it out and i kind of spent the years between like 19 and 25 like doing that like learning a bit about recording and just at home like practicing and you know which is a whole other long story but what was it when it got released were you able to go in stores and buy it yeah did your parents get to go into a store and buy it they did did they then see that it was for a purpose? Yeah. I, look, my parents were also just by nature of, they had very basic ideas of what you're supposed to do, you know? Like you're supposed to go to college and become like a lawyer or a doctor or something, you know? But they they hadn't done that. Their parents hadn't done that. You know, their parents were, my dad's side of the family was bouncing all over Europe and my mom's side of the family was like in the Holocaust. Like there's no, there was no, tradition as to how things are done so there was some very basic ideas of how things were done but the fact that i wasn't doing them wasn't like totally shocking i didn't come from like a lineage of families that all went of family like family members that all went to this one university all became this kind of thing it was it was it was a little bit like fending for yourself in this life you know so while they were they were scared for me and like sort of disappointed at first yeah, the moment they saw that I was doing something, they were a little bit like, "All right, like let it let it roll." They weren't they weren't. Um, I think they also saw that I was like pretty self critical. You know what I mean? Like I was, I wasn't just accepting the situation and like gonna get comfortable in it and just like I don't know, not go anywhere. Like I, I either I was gonna quit and go back to school, or what I wound up doing was delving way deeper into it and like really trying to get better at it and, and find my place in it. When you heard the album and you felt like it didn't, you said that you weren't there yet. Is that 
sonically? Is that writing wise? Were you at that point? Is that what pushes you into wanting to produce? All of that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I just didn't even have, I mean, imagine just having zero vernacular, you know what I mean? Like just nothing. Like I, like I listened to records that I, I kind of liked the way they sounded, but most of them were pretty like DIY bedroom punk lo-fi records. So how do you, you find yourself in a situation where someone's telling you to go into this studio and make a record with this producer. It's hard to go like, this is what I want to sound like, you know? It just, none of it made sense. So, and also I didn't even know that that's, that there, that was a thing. I, I just could not differentiate what made this record sound this way and this record sound that way. I just had no idea. There was just no information. There was, I'd never known anyone who had done it. I'd never seen any sort of videos of people doing it. I just had no clue. There's nothing at that point. There's, I mean, from, you know, that, that's basically... I imagine Hippos ends then in probably around 2001 or so. 2000. You know? I mean, it was like winding down in 99 and then 2000. So it was like... Between then and, you know, your first commercial success, you have these six years of living in LA. Are you living with your parents? Are you so what exactly, I'll tell you exactly what happened um, is I got back, I was around 19, 20 years old, like, you know, trying half thinking I'm going to make another album, figure it out, half thinking what's next because this isn't right for me. Like that was fun, you know, but also stressful and I'm like not there yet and I got to figure this out. And at the same time, uh, like a friend's older brother who knew that I was kind of a music nerd and at that point I got some home recording stuff to just kind of tool around like literally a four track and then i got like the very first version of pro tools because i saw them using it in the studio uh, sorry the very first version of consumer pro tools the 001 or whatever you know and so this guy knew that i had stuff and knew that i had like sort of a crazy diverse record collection and knowledge of music and in theory could make music and so he was in a situation. So a friend's older brother graduated film school, was starting to do commercials. And I think it was just one of these like fluke situations where the music house they had hired had sort of failed them. They didn't, nobody liked it. The director, the client, the ad agency. Of course, at the time I had no idea. I just got asked, do you want to give this a shot? And I was like, sure. You know? And, um, and again, like I just had like a crazy CD collection. And like, when I think back to it, it's not that different from, this was kind of a, 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 I think like a tradition all the way through, maybe still where like a company would reissue, a record label reissue some album, you know? I feel like even when, I can't remember exactly what it was, but Kids See Ghost, the Kanye Kid Cudi album, is that what it was called? Like I think so. came out and you, you just knew like Lighthouse Records had just reissued some old R&B record and like every song on that album was like sampled. But it's it, like, I think the, the reissue thing is like a big part of like music that people don't talk about. You know, like I feel like um, Soul Jazz Records would uh, reissue some post-punk or, or make a, a post-punk compilation in like the early 2000s and suddenly, again, it could just be something in the air or directly influenced, but suddenly there's like bands like Interpol and, you know, strokes, whatever. There's just like this, like post-punk bands 
or like no wave bands from like New York in like the early seventies, early eighties, like compilation come out. And then a whole genre of music was like sort of created indie music, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and at the time, again, it's just like super random, but, but I, I remember a documentary coming out about Leon Theremin, I think is his name, the guy who invented the theremin. And I just, I go to the video, my local like independent video store and I see it on the thing. I'm like, I'll rent that. And suddenly like learn all the stuff about this random guy, Leon Theremin. And then I start like getting interested in that stuff. And, and uh, Raymond Scott, one of the earliest electronic music artists or inventor who came out of uh, classical music as well. And wound up doing all the ad music for like really early, like fifties, like world fair general electric for that kind of stuff I'm, I'm, I'm sort of making it up but that sort of thing just all this stuff was kind of bouncing around my head with nowhere to go and then suddenly i get asked to do this commercial and i think like oh experimental ad music that sounds fun you know and i and i had this opportunity to play with the synthesizer that i bought that i never really had any like use for because i played in a band that like essentially was just power chords you know and um so i got to experiment and i was sort of like And then I got the gig, you know, and then it paid me. And then suddenly I could like move into downtown LA, which at the time was, you know, apocalyptic, super cheap, a lot of space. And my purpose was just that, like a big warehouse space that I could make a lot of noise, you know, skateboard DJ and like mess around with music. So I was like 20. I moved out of my parents' house. I wasn't even home between the ages of like 16 and 19. And then suddenly I had the space and, I was messing around occasionally with like a, com- a commercial thing, which really helped me explore various genres of music and, and explore production, you know, playing with a computer recording, which was all brand new to me. Everything was new to me. And then along the way, I just would meet people or I knew people from high school. Uh, suddenly all these people that I knew from high school were coming back for the summer and, you know, we went to a music school. So, an old friend of mine from high school, this rapper named Murs, came home and, and was uh, had just gotten a, a record deal with Def Jux, which was LP's like independent hip hop label, you know. And he came over and we worked on an album for him just because it was just old friends and just playing around. And so, again, like on and on and on, that's sort of what was happening. And I I didn't think this is what I'm doing. It's just. I had the ability, I had friends, and we just did it. Then I started a band, and then I do more of those things. And at some point, just production, I, I, I very slowly realized that I enjoyed being in the studio more than I enjoyed touring and you know worrying about just 10 songs over the course of two years, you know? Right. You're, you know, your first big sort of commercial success ends up just being so massive. I'm sure that you had songs come out, but, you know, I mentioned it in the in the intro, but Hey There Delilah is really like one of the first records that I can find in your discography that I recognize. How does yeah, it, you know... I mean, it's, one of, it's one of those things I, I did. It's just so crazy. It's, it's maybe like the, like the second... Or third, I don't even. It's it's literally one of the first two things. Yeah, it was totally weird. I mean, and not only was it crazy, yeah, why but like, did he ask you to do that song, and how did that? You know, I did. I did their whole album, 
not the one. So there was a, so somebody I knew was starting to work with them, manage them or something. And they knew that I had an idea about songwriting and was interested in production. And they were totally unknown and independent and just asked me if I would like, you know, they were just like one shade younger than me. Meaning like I was like, 22 or 23 and they were like 21 or something like that maybe even younger 19 i don't remember the date but we were just like we were all very young and they would send me somebody connected us and they would just send me like i don't even remember cdrs or something like what did you even do back then like tapes of like song ideas over the course of like six months or a year i kind of heard different scraps of songs until suddenly you could imagine there being like a whole album's worth of stuff. Then they came out and we did like literally like a rehearsal room listening to them again. Maybe they did that a couple times throughout. Like they would come and tour a little bit and play shows little just again in front of like nobody and just a chance to meet and like talk about like the vibe and, uh, it was super abstract. Like I wasn't really thinking about it too much. And then finally it came. I was, I was really hyped on any excuse to be in a studio and like be experimenting, you know? And, and at the time I was like really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. into like Iggy pop records and Tom Petty records. And, and I, I saw them as like, you know, they were kind of like a pop rock band. Like in my mind, that's just all that I could imagine. I was interested in like the way those records sounded like dead kind of funky sounding drums and minimalist. And like, you know, I, again, I don't even know if I could really articulate it, but just like seventies type stuff. I was it was because I didn't hear anybody doing anything like that. And I was like, I was starting to realize I like records that sound like this versus records that sound like this. And I brought them in and, you know, we use like old fuzz pedals and, and old beat up Ludwig drums instead of like the DW set that was at every studio that was like perfectly tuned and ringing for days. I, I like, put towels on the drums, did all these things I was like, I was excited about. And then so we, and we made the record, you know, like vocal, I was distorting the vocals and doing all this stuff. Like that sounded kind of interesting to me. And then suddenly 
there was a label involved and then I played it for them and they just, I think they just, well, I didn't play it for them. They, the band played it for them and the overwhelming feedback was kind of that it sounded like shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was sounded like a bad demo. And, um, I was like, ah, oh, oops. You know, I guess I didn't do very good. And then, and then somebody mixed it and like sound replaced all the drums and just tried to like polish it all up. And then there was just one song that album they couldn't really do much with, which was, Hey, the Delilah, which they were especially kind of weirded out by the label that it was just like, what is it? Sounds like the demo, you know? And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of, I don't know. It made me feel something the way it was. I didn't think it needed anything else, you know? And, and I was, I had no confidence, of course, you know, like you asked me to do something, I'll do it. But the minute you challenge me, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm wrong. You know, so I had no idea. And that was sort of my takeaway. Like I did, an okay job of getting these songs recorded and they sounded like a demo to, to the people, but they did their thing. And, you know, I, I, I never really knew the guys in the band before that. And so I didn't really necessarily stay in touch with them afterwards. They, they lived in Chicago. I lived in LA. There wasn't any like proximity to keep us close or anything. So they went off and did their thing and I didn't really hear too much about it. And then a few years later I started hearing that song on the radio but it was like years later you know and i i assumed hearing on the radio made it, it sounded so legit you know so i just assumed that they had gone in with some fancy producer and re redone it and that they were they got better and they could play it better you know i just had such a unconfident memory of what all that was and when did you realize that it was your work that you were hearing on the radio. I, I heard it once, I heard it twice, and then I started like painting. I remember, I'm like, hey, I remember that crack in his voice. Like, I remember, I feel like I remember like comping that in, you know, because I was learning about editing and everything was all so new to me that I like really it ingrained, you know, I, I, was, I paid attention to every breath, you know what I mean? So uh, I was like, huh. And I remember coming home and I, or I went to the store and I bought this new album that they got. Like, I got found a used CD of it and I, imported it into Pro Tools. And on the album, it actually said it was produced by somebody else. And and then I imported, and then I put it up next to my bounce. And it was like, just, I was like, I was, I'm going to like go through and listen to it and see if it's, if any, like where the similarities are. And I hit play and it just phased out because you know, it was the same thing. So um, whatever, that's like maybe too nerdy to explain to people who are listening, no. but it's, no, if, no, no. it's literally this, if you play two of the same exact things, it either sounds louder or just completely disappears because they cancel each other out. And cause what had happened, it wasn't malicious, but they put out the album and I guess it did what it did. Okay. And then that song had become a fan favorite. So they just added it on and they didn't change the artwork. So it was just like bonus track. Hey, they're loud. There was no credit for it or anything. So there was no, I didn't even know that it was me, you know, that I was like, Hey, do I need to like talk to somebody? You know? And then, and of course they, they worked it all out and everybody took care of me and we were totally cool. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it happened. That's how kind of accidental the whole thing was. It's so weird. Everyone tries so hard to write hits and to produce hits. And, you know, they'll hear a million times that, oh, there was no plan. It just happened. Or it's like all the stars aligned and all the things happened. But it needs like that kind of thing for it to work. It needs years of 
them touring and that song being such a fan favorite that they add it onto the album when the label doesn't want it. They don't want the, they don't want your recordings. And then the song that blows up is the one that you believed in. You know, it's like, that's just so remarkable. It's all, it shows how bad humans are predicting what a hit is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a huge learning lesson to me in that moment. Like, okay, this is all like extremely random and all, and all, all you can go off of is, you're just gut feeling. Does this song make me feel something? You know, and it did. You know, and that's it. Did it make? Did it give you confidence going forward that maybe you do know what you're doing? Well, yes and no, because then suddenly I was getting hit up to do every acoustic guitar song right. by every new artist that was coming out. You know on some major label and and what I had also learned kind of early on accidentally with the hippos was that I was really trying to find myself you know I was trying to find my comfort place like something that felt authentic to me and while I had I clearly had a knack for taking something and making it and helping it find its potential whatever that means which means in that case it meant do very little you know like don't ruin it because you know I had all these you know like so easily I felt like you could overdo that and make it and, and ruin it. And I'm sure I had done that on other songs, you know, but, um, right. yeah, I jokingly always say that nothing ruins a song faster than production. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think, honestly, I think what, you know, I, behind your back, I think everyone talks about that's probably your forte is that you don't step on the toes of the song. I try not to, you know, it's just, I, I'm not, I'm always up for a challenge and up for an adventure. And so like, I think that I fall flat sometimes and other times I, I break new grounds for myself, you know, and enter like a new place. So, um, but yeah, when I'm thinking straight and when I'm, when I'm, when I'm able to have like the correct perspective, that's, that's sort of the idea, you know. For the next six years after that, and I always say, like, I, I think what's most interesting is the stuff that happens between the hits. But right when that happened, I had, like, an adverse reaction. I was like, oh, shit, that's not exactly the kind of music I want to, that I should be making. You know, like, I guess it, it, it's not that kind of music. It's just that, like, people like to put things in a box, you know? And I'm, I'm like, the reason why that happened is not because I'm a, acoustic guitar singer songwriter producer that happened because we were in a room together for a month and there was a chemistry going on and there was a bunch of ideas that fell flat that landed on that you know what i mean that's how we just got there you know and so just sending me some random song it's like yeah i can get this done but i don't know luckily i was like young enough and i had been making money off some other commercials or something. I, di I didn't feel like the desperation to just do anything. So I was more interested in, in finding myself artistically. And so I just started more bands because there wasn't anybody that I knew that was asking me to work on stuff where I felt connected to it yet. So I, I started a band with some friends from high school actually called foreign born. And, you know, we signed some label we'd never really heard of called secretly Canadian. And then, you know, met people like, not necessarily because of that label, but just because of that movement that was happening, like Cass McCombs and Vampire Weekend and 
St. Vincent and, uh, you know, Anthony and Johnson's and Bonnie Vare and all this kind of stuff. Like we're suddenly uh, like, and it wasn't like overnight, but like, I started feeling like, okay, like this is, I'm suddenly like feeling a little bit more like at home, you know? And, and, uh, on one level, you know, it's not like, this is my shit exactly. This is just like, but it's something that's inspiring you enough to keep working. Yeah. And I'm meeting people that I like, I, I, I feel, yeah, I feel inspired to like, sort of like make music with these people, you know? And I started making records with Cass McCombs and I met Dev Hines, you know, through Domino records. Cause, and you know, it just like suddenly I started making records like with people that I felt like, we were we were coming from the same place or similar places. A few years later, after you're working on Secretly Canadian and those other things, you do something switches again. And in around 2011, 2012, No Doubt and Charlie XCX and Justin Bieber and, you know, Ellie Goulding. And then, you know, Usher Climax, which is a huge record that defined a lot of people's you know, sort of coming out party with Diplo and whatnot. It's like so much, something happened that year and you're crossing over into pop. What happened that made you all of a sudden go from being bands, bands, bands to the biggest pop stars that exist? Well, a lot of stuff came out that year and it like became like, I kind of got like really, um, I got a lot of attention around that year probably, but it's stuff that I've been working on, as you probably know, like for yeah. three years, you know, kind of starting to, so as, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of came from a hip hop background, you know, like, I, like rap music was one of my earliest things that like really I'd, I identified with as a kid. Like these were the records I bought versus the records I was hearing on the radio, you know, like, Souls of Mischief, uh, Far Side, De La Soul, like all the stuff, obvious stuff, Beastie Boys, um, just like music that was, I, I was drawn to sampling and, and like I was drawn to like drum machines and sampling and bass and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I never really had too much of an excuse to explore that because I just got caught up in something else, which was, which was, equally interesting to me, which was learning how to make rock music sound like something I could possibly like, because I just wasn't very happy with what was going on, like, in the late 90s, you know, early 2000s in rock music. So I, I had to, like, find my own world there with, like, organic instruments, bass, guitar, drums, you know. And, and, I, and I did, and I felt pretty good about it. You know, I was, like, kind of, like, tapping into some stuff I felt pretty pretty proud of like the Catherine Combs records and the blood orange stuff. And it was starting to like, it was, it was Mel sky Ferreira, you know, it was like melding in. I started working with vampire weekend and Heim and I was like starting to do stuff that like, I felt like I was, I was, I was getting to where I had been trying to go to with like rock bands for, yeah, for lack of more. Say again. Uh, no, you finished. Well, just like obviously, that's a broad thing to say. Rock bands, people think of rock, but you know what I mean. Like, like music that is made with live drums, live bass, live guitars, 
and other things too, but at the root of it, that's what's going on. So I, I felt like I had kind of started to, yeah, started to get, get to where I wanted to get to. And right around then, as per usual, I started to have like an itch. And I was hearing music that was really interesting to me, like the, the first MIA album, you know? And I uh, heard about this guy, Switch. I knew about him somehow. And maybe because, like, I don't remember why exactly. Like, I just started to hear about Switch and Diplo and, and, and these, these guys that were, like, coming out making essentially really, like, bizarre kind of world music-inspired, you know... Uh, sorry, I'm actually getting a FaceTime. I mean, how do I stop this? No, you should include him. It was Chris Bale from Vampire Weekend. Hold on, let me just tell him that I'm going to... No, you tell him I, You tell him that you'll call him back and tell him that he should jump on if he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's, um, it's great. We'll probably keep all that. Okay. <laughs> it, it happens. Um, so I was just aware of it, you know, and, and I, I, I can't tell you exactly what I was thinking because I wasn't thinking too much about it, but I was aware of it and I liked it because, you know, there were dance hall influences and it like kind of like reminded me of like a lot of the records that I used to listen to, like Scott Jamaican stuff and, um, interesting kind of like new, new, what I considered like new hip hop, you know, like MIA, like red as like a, a rap artist to me, you know, at the, for, but like, but new. It was like the next wave. Like the, the the genre was evolving so much all the time. That just that's just how I read it because I wasn't really thinking about like electronic music per se, you know. And I thought of music that was either made by recording a, a live band or music that was made by like, you know, sequencing and and building tracks. And and I guess like pop music. I guess pop, hip hop, and electronic music was all like one side of the spectrum, and then like organic music was like the other the other side of the spectrum. And right. so I was aware of stuff that was happening and yeah, I always listened to, I can't exactly remember what was going on, but the point is that somebody who knew me and knew that I had like all kinds of like esoteric, crazy recording stuff and like t- cassette tape machines and stuff hit me up and asked me if I had a cassette tape player. And I was like, yeah, I do a bunch. And they're like, my friend Switch is trying to get these demos off of cassette and into Logic. Can you help him? And I was like, oh, yeah, Switch. Yeah, I like that guy. That'd be, that'd be fun. I'd, I'd like to meet him. And so I went over and I brought over like some Iowa cassette deck and we started transferring MIA demos onto his laptop. And, we, and I was just kind of blown away because he was like sitting in his house with a laptop and a glass of wine and, you know, two big ass speakers. And I had just, finished slaving over this like literally analog tape recording Casper Combs record. And it was just like the other side of the spectrum. And it was really interesting to me. And I was, and, and he was super nice and interested in what I was doing. I was playing him stuff. He's like, Whoa, it sounds like stuff I would sample, you know? And I was like, okay. And then he was like, can you make some stuff for me? I was like, sure. And then I started messing around and, and like feeding him instrumentals and he would chop them up and turn them and stuff. And I don't, I don't even remember what came of some of that stuff. Maybe like early, early major laser bits you know like first album major laser bits or like but eventually and it was pretty quickly so this is probably somewhere around 2009 and at some point he introduced me to diplo who was his like 
production partner at the time and and they started bringing me along to like sessions that we they were doing and that's how I wound up like involved in that no doubt song I mean I wasn't really involved in no doubt you know and and with Ellie Goulding that was actually she actually covered a song that I did with this guy Active Child so I really wasn't involved with Ellie Goulding just to clear things up you know super random too like I saw a guy called Active Child playing a harp and singing like boys choir. I thought I, I saw this guy. I was like, "Whoa, that is so weird!" Like it literally sounded like new age, like it like deep forest, like weird kind of like new age music. And I was like, I was like, "Hey, if you ever want to like mess around the studio, hit me up." And you know, long story short, we made an album, and then cut to like Ellie Goulding covering the song. I was like, "What is going on?" You know, like very random. You know. I mean, you must, that next year, you know, and there's a lot that happens after this, but I think it's interesting to see how, like, what that moment is when things break. You probably have 50, 40, 50 songs that get released in one year because of the stuff you do with Skyfair and, and... Right, and it was all kind of like, we were just, we were... Vampire Weekend, it's so much. Charlie XCX, Snoop Lion, like, just Major Lazer all that Solange it's so much content yeah. in one, you know to come out in one year even though that's I know multiple years leading up to it yep um but that sort of like establishes you as like a as a major player I feel like yeah and you and and that and point it does and but like when you're talking about it like it really did like you know and it caught me by surprise and because um while Usher was sort of like a premeditated idea you know like we went yeah. we went in like we're gonna make music with usher a, a lot of the other stuff was thinking about solange at the time like nobody that was like the first that was well people knew solange but like her deep like solo star stuff or whatever i i certainly didn't really you know what i mean i met her like in this kind of random way and we were working on on stuff it, it was never with any up until that point i never really expected there to be a large audience for the music I was making. I was just having fun exploring, learning, you know, and everyone I was working with was really not like on trend or anything like that. Like nobody, you know, Sky Ferreira, Charlie. Yeah. It was like, they're all like, we were just like experimenting with what I thought was like very like bizarre music that I hadn't heard yet, you know? Yeah, I, it's like I want to get into each Hyam album and each Vampire Weekend album, but before we get to those, and I don't even know how we do that. No, yeah, it's going to be hard. Because we would need like six of these. But I just want to, you know, talk about when we were young, because obviously the time for to be part of Adele during 21 and 25, those two albums are just epically successful. And that seems like you know, in a weird sort of way, going to the cleanliness of uh, organic music, but in, in your way of like the dirtier drums or the dirtier choices, that's just like the pinnacle of like a, a performance and experience that album and being a part of it. You know, that, that feels like that's the climax of one's career, is it not? 
I mean, I know that we're all working to continue that. And you still have, obviously, like Vampire Weekend in the last year and Hyam in the last year. I mean, the last couple of months. But it's certainly, I, don't, I certainly don't expect to work on records that, you know, yeah, there's some obscene amount of records sold. I mean, Adele is like, yes, that is a random. Like, she is a. Did she reach out to you or was it just, how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you, I, again, it's like in, in like a really, it, it's a very simple story to follow because I met Tobias Jesso Jr. just the way I met anyone else that I'm, you know, again, I could tell you this guy, Dean, that I was old friends with that used to be in the like punk scene who then became an intern for Matador Records. And then my, I had a roommate named Cameron, this girl who went had an artist project called glasser and we like we did it together like she was my roommate we just like made i mean we she called it glasser we made this like little album dean put it out through his label that was became part of matador through that record i believe you know and then dean and i got to know each other dean signed this kid tobias and tobias was making records like going around like making a record with other people and then at just some point, like we would naturally met each other and did a song together. And I mean, so organized. I feel like I was in the studio with Haim. Tobias came by, Danielle got on the drums. We just did, a, we, we, we kind of, we did one of the songs on his first album. And I think, I guess Adele loved it and asked Tobias to write with her. And they came up with the song. And there's a little bit more to it, but I produced that song. So it's it was just like totally, or it's just, it just happened. totally organic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like it, like made perfect sense. I met her. I mean, it was it was kind of a funny story making that song, but that's basically how it happened. And um, yeah, I was left with I, I kind of early on, and it was actually around the time that I did Climax by Usher. I realized there's no point in me trying to do, I think I or, already knew this somewhere inside, but it became very clear to me that it was, there was no point in me trying to do what other people do. I just had to like fall. I mean, Usher really encourages out of me, honestly. Like it was so, it was so bizarre because I found myself in a room with one of the biggest R and B artists ever. I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, like I knew Usher's music because every girl in my high school loved Usher, you know, and I knew confessions and I just knew it, but it wasn't like I dedicated my life to R&B really, you know what I mean? I, I felt like, what am I doing here? And so like, of course I was so influenced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and the records they'd done that had crossed from pop to R&B and all everything in that zone. And I kind of was like in my mind imagining delving into that territory. And I walked into the studio to work with Usher and literally as I was opening the door to the room, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis were walking out. I'm like, oh my God, like, of course. Like, I'm I'm now at this place where... So weird. If this <laughs> artist wanted Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, they would, he would literally just have Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis do it. You know, whereas like maybe that would, that would be kind of a funny influence and something I was doing with like Charlie XCX or something and it felt like so removed from the world that we were in, you know, in this case, like he would literally have them in. So it would force me to really just like dig deep inside myself and just ask like what he even like literally asked the question, like, what do you 
have inside of you? Like, what do you want this to be? You know? And, and of course, and of course it wasn't like a very, it wasn't like a single word word answer. It was like, you know, okay, let's just like intuitively move through this and like write music and, and find it. And that's how we got to, to climax, which didn't make a whole lot of sense at the time. You know, like he was a big pop artist at that point. He wasn't really making like slow R and B. It's just, I heard him sing something falsetto when he was messing around. I was like, Oh my God. Like I'd never heard anything like that. I'm like that, you know? And, uh, it was as simple as like, if I want to do, you know, EDM four on the floor music, I'll have Max Martin or will I am or any of those guys do it. If I want, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis stuff, I'll, I'll hire them. Like, what are you going to do? You know? And so somehow like in like a panic of just following instincts, we ended up on climax. Tell me about, because I know we only have about 15 minutes, but I want to hear everything that you can tell me about working with Vampire Weekend and everything you can tell me about working with Hyam, both who are deserve their own episodes. So let's just go with Vampire Weekend first. Okay. So I met them along the way here and there, like touring and playing shows and Rostam and I had a real connection because we were both kind of interested in production. He was like producing mostly Vampire Weekend stuff, but he had a project called Discovery and he was just into it. He was into like recording and doing his own thing versus, yeah, versus, you know, being a band member that hired outside producers. And then he was working on his own project. And every time he'd come through LA, he just kind of came over and played me stuff and we just talked and we kind of got to know each other. And, um, and then when they were starting to work on their, or I wouldn't even say starting to work on it, they were probably like a year in on like writing and trying to find the third album. I don't know. They had just kind of hit some roadblocks and wanted some outside help. And it wasn't even that clear, you know, but they were, they were New York based and Ross Stam knew I had a little studio space in LA. So he asked me if he could use it wanted me to meet Ezra. He's like, come down, help us get, you know, like set up and stuff. And I was like, sure. And they came in and sort of, we got to know each other. And without me knowing, I guess in that first week, we just kind of broke down some walls that they had hit, you know, and trying to like find the, the vibe of what w- would be modern vampires of the city. And, um, and so it just kind of prolonged. It's just like, Hey, can we do another week? Hey, come to New York, let's, you know, suddenly I'm there for a month, you know, we just kept going, kept going, kept going until the album was done. That's the short story, you know? And then... The critical success of that band, uh, I mean, imagine that's as much as Adele has the commercial success. I imagine Vampire Weekend and Haim are the two critical successes that um, justify you're off the beaten path kind of production, right? Yeah, well, specifically going back to the first thing you said, it, it really came full circle when, when that record came out and it was nominated for a Grammy and then won a Grammy and I was nominated for producer of the year. It was like, whoa, okay. Like suddenly, you know, then you go to this event because, you know, as a, in my specific, not super specific, but in my world of producing and writing, I'm generally digging in on albums. So I don't meet that many people in a year, you know, like I'll 
you know, over the course of like probably 2009, 2013 was really busy. And that was maybe like five people, you know, like it was probably Sky, Solange, Haim and Vampire Weekend and whatever, you know, like, like, it's not like I'm as a, you're not choosing and as a producer writer, you're not like out there meeting like every other producer writer there is in the game, you know? So to suddenly go to the Grammys and see all these people, like oh okay we're you know like okay so now we're like these these people like know who we are it's crazy you know it was a crazy feeling because because yeah even though I had like commercial success with with plain white tees it was pretty abstract and like removed from my 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 life and um, and as I started to really dig in and 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 have relationships with the music and the musicians that I was making music with. It was all so on the fringe, I thought, you know, like I, I th- in fact, when we were making Modern Vampires, I was like, this is like, this is like the darkest, weirdest sounding record I had probably been involved in at that point. You know, it seemed like the opposite of like any kind of commercial success, you know, but, you know, it went, I don't know, plat- gold, platinum, won Grammys. It was crazy, you know, so it, it, it did kind of just, these are, these are all the, like the, what I consider lucky moments that that gave me the encouragement to like just keep following my uh, my gut, you know. Like it was hard work, but the fact that it was so well received feels somewhat lucky, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of hard work going into it, but there's other records you work really hard on that don't receive that same sort of gratification, you know. What is it? You know, and and to skip over to Haim, and I think that those careers are really parallel in a lot of ways. They're similar. Haim was like just behind them by like an, a, a couple albums. We were we were working on the first Haim album. When we were working on the third Vampire Weekend album. You know, so right. and again, I someone said, you know, there's this band that wants to meet you. Goes, I thought I'd, I'd heard, I'd seen their name on flyers or something. You know, their L.A. band. I went to go see them. And I was just like, what is, I mean, I, I can't even say that I liked it. I was so confused by what was happening. You know, they're like, they've these- been from a band in, at, at the Echo that's, in that's, 2010. You saw them at 2000 the Echo? That's when I they, saw them. They opened for my band. No way. Yeah, my band was Glacier Hiking. They were like the opening band. I just remember that because it was a, um, uh, that, might, Kevin, that might be Kevin, the show that I saw them at really funny is kevin bronson put a night together right and i, I just remember that uh i just remember them opening because i have like a poster yeah of, like glacier hiking and then opening it says hi i'm on it yeah. i just think that's classic because my band did not do very well and they did very well that's so it's, it's cool. funny yeah but no i saw them and i was like i was just <laughs> you know if anything i was drawn to the fact that i didn't get it you know because i because yeah. I kind of liked that. I was like, wow, what do they want from me? You know, like they were like, I mean, I get it. They were a band, but they were like these three sisters. They were shredding so hard on stage. It was like, yeah, I had not seen that like in a long time, if ever, you know, skill set is out of control. I don't know if people recognize their skill set. Yeah. They can, they were, they can do anything. They were like, and they were, and they had a, funny presence. They were like very interlocked, like three people that were super locked in and just, shredding it was almost like some like you know black sabbath shit happening on stage i was really like what is this <laughs> you know like what are we and then i met them and i was like what you know like i always ask a question because i'm like just tell me why like 
you called me, you know, and they're like, well, we really like the fact that we love that Cass McCombs record you did. And we also love Climax. Or like, how could that be the same person? You know? And I was like, you know, same guy who makes it. Yeah. You know? I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, you know? And, and, and I was like, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> like that's, it's, <laughs> it's, it was, it's been a strange journey and yet, you know, it makes sense to me, but I don't know how to explain it, you know? And that's kind yeah. of like, it was just indicative of like a, a, a movement or representative of a movement where like genres were just folding into each other and like people weren't interested in being like stuck in one kind of box, you know? And yeah. And then, you know, a very long story, but we started to experiment. They, they had gone, they'd been a band, obviously they're a family. So they'd been messing around for years and years and years and years and trying to find what they sound like in the studio and it reminded me a little bit of my own journey you know of like sort of like knowing i want to do this being good at something but not really knowing what it is exactly and what the sound is and and that's what got me into production was like that feeling of like well first of all my own helplessness in the in the process you know and wanting to get a grip on it. And then as I started working with other new artists, I, I, I felt the responsibility of, of helping guide them through that and like digging deep inside of them and helping them reach their potential and whatever it is they're searching for that they can't quite articulate, you know? And despite what other people might think they're supposed to sound like, you know, because pretty much as soon as I started working with Haim and they got signed while we were working together, I got the impression and that, well, it was clear to me that what people were expecting from them was this like raw live rock record, you know, because of their live show. But then getting to know them, they had very bizarre taste. I mean, they were like, they were one part like obsessed with the Eagles, which I had never like dug into. I was like, okay, the Eagles grant like, okay, let's do some homework, you know? And then of course, like two parts like Shaka Khan or something. And then like, one part Pharrell or what, you know, they were like into every, and I understood the, uh, the big picture of like what they were into, which was just not sounding like anything that had come before, you know? And so we just went down that journey. And again, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you know, they were picking up steam while we were making the record, but I was still shocked that it like, because it just seemed like so weird to me. I'm like, who's going to like this? You know, I like it, but who else is going to like this? And and it just, it took off for them on that one. Yeah. I mean, it's so incredible. And, you know, first of all, thank you for doing this. Yeah. No problem. Sorry if I like babbled on too long. No, I want to, it's like, I, I want to keep going because I actually like want to go into, you know, w- there, to be part of there, our game right now, a lot of it is, is I have sort of the opposite kind of discography where I have one song here, one song there, one song there, two songs there, four songs there, one song once. But it's not like I, I, I don't really, as a songwriter, you don't always get to dive in on a whole album with an artist. Absolutely. Different than a producer. And even though I started out writing songs, I came into my career as a more of like a what I became very interested in was the vision of the album, you know? And so that's just like where I, like 
without thinking about it. I wasn't like, that's what I want to do. It's just like where I went, you know? And then as I started working with people who were interested in writing in the studio, which was not always a common thing, you know, I just, you picked up an instrument and started doing that, you know, but. Well, I mean, you know, you've, I love that in the beginning you were so unsure about it. And I think a lot of musicians are like that where they, you know, either they're they're overly confident in the beginning or they have no confidence in the beginning. But there aren't that many people where their skill set can bring them through an industry that's built on ego, you know, and you've managed to work your way in and define a path because you're loyal to the people you work with and the people you work with are loyal to you. And you guys have created art and you've created art that people talk about behind your back. And that's the biggest compliment you can get is that when you're in the studio meeting five different artists, uh, there are people loving it enough to give you Grammy nominations and wins is because, you know, you're creating art and it's, uh, it's really impressive. And, you know, I appreciate that. So cool, man. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. We'll have to do it again. Part two. Love it. All right, cool. Part three in the studio. Even better. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.